This is Daniel Figel, and you're listening to the AI and Business Podcast. If you've ever gotten a credit report, probably all of you have, then you're familiar with Experian. Experian is a multinational credit reporting company. They are an over $5 billion firm, uh, a giant in this space. They also have uh, analytics and data offerings to help with marketing and other business functions as well. Um, and they collect data on over a billion people and businesses and aggregate and clean that data and make it available to clients. Obviously, credit reporting is one of the things they're best known for. We speak this week with the global head of advanced analytics and artificial intelligence at Experian, this multi-billion dollar giant, Sri Santhanam. Sri speaks with us this week about the future of data in business. In other words, how will data vendors, like Experian, for example, make their products more accessible to the enterprises? There are some big challenges with accessing data, big challenges with training algorithms and finding ways for them to work within certain workflows within the enterprise. We're often working with really old IT infrastructure. We're working with new kinds of R&D skills around AI that many enterprises aren't prepared for. How are vendors, like Experian, going to evolve their data products to make them more valuable for enterprise users. Also, what are some of the use cases that Experian, a gigantic firm in the data space, is seeing some of their clients begin using today? How are they using data in their industry? Shri goes into some use cases, but it really goes into the evolution of data and analytics and how they're going to combine. Um, whether you're looking to use your own data more effectively or whether you're working with vendors, this will hopefully be a very useful take and perspective. And if you're interested in these bigger picture insights around trends, and bigger picture insights around shaking the business value, the ROI out of artificial intelligence, then I'd admonish you to check out Emerge Plus. You can go to emerj.com slash p1. This is really the best of the best of our insights, unlocking our full map of use cases, unlocking all of our AI white papers, and our best practice guide section, which includes direct guides, simple infographics, and frameworks for adopting artificial intelligence, finding artificial intelligence trends, including trends we've already aggregated for you, and being able to find the ROI of AI. How do we measure it and how do we convey it? Whether you're looking to reduce risk for AI projects within a big company or whether you serve big companies and you've really got to be able to make the business case in a powerful way and convey the ROI of AI in a way that isn't a nice to have, but you can find those real need to have pockets where value is really going to be made, then Emerge Plus is for you. You can go to emerj.com slash P1 and check it out. Without further ado, let's roll into this episode. This is Sri Santanam with Experian here on the AI and Business Podcast. So, Shri, I want to talk first about some of the the use cases for artificial intelligence that you folks are seeing more of since this wild coronavirus pandemic has hit. I think a lot of people are interested in trends and how businesses are adjusting. You guys are in touch with so many gigantic brands. What are you seeing in terms of people's response to these issues with uh, with AI? So, our customer base, we see a, a large number of lending businesses and the number one question that these businesses are asking with the pandemic upon us is they're asking, how is consumer behavior changing and what does that mean for how I make decisions? And as a consequence of that, we're seeing a whole host of use cases riffing off that particular core question. Yeah, yeah. There's a significant, there's a significant use case on monitoring and probably the most important thing Every executive I've talked to is saying, like, I historically have monitored my models, my decisions 
maybe at sort of the regulatory cadence or slightly ahead, but now that's just not good enough, right? I need to know what's going on. I need to know if my models are being disrupted, if I need to make changes. And that whole sort of active monitoring of what's sort of going on is becoming quite urgent. Okay, cool, cool. Another piece of this is actually forecasting. So once I monitor, I now need to create a set of scenarios for how my business will look if various things play out. And that's particularly important in the context of the various objectives that our lenders have. They've got a set of social obligations they have. They have a set of regulatory obligations they have. And at the core of it, fundamentally, they're held accountable by their shareholders to running profitable businesses which provide meaningful shareholder return. And that whole problem just got like an order of magnitude more complicated with the pandemic. Yeah, I can only imagine that we're just touching on the very tip of the iceberg of the new things that folks are considering. So they're coming to you with these new concerns. And when you talked about sort of updating our models and needing to stay in touch with the the real world in some way, shape, or form, what I sort of presumed you might be meaning is something akin to, hey, the PPP money just ran out. Do I need to factor that in? And all these things are happening very, very quickly. Hey, this trade deal with China just went this way or went that way, or the election's coming up. Are, are these the kind of jarring events that make it feel like run-of-the-mill, seasonal, annual kind of fluctuation models that we have on file are just not going to cut it? Is, is this Am I following you? I just want to make sure I, I know what you mean when you talk about folks being a little bit more antsy about models and performance here. Those are great points, and they're part of the broader reason why models are being disrupted. So if you look at the vast majority of lending businesses in the, U, in the U.S., they make their decisions through a combination of generic scores, custom scores, custom models. And at the simplest level, all these are models which have been trained on historical consumer data, where you're looking at a training set of consumers and saying they behaved in a certain way. I've got certain attributes which are predictive of their sort of behavior. And consequently, I've got models with weights trained, which will help me make those decisions. In many instances, I have a set of rules around them. Now, the whole reality, like a consumer who in that sort of paradigm scored very high might now actually be the opposite because uh, in an industry which has been impacted adversely. And the reverse might also be true in some instances. So fundamentally, my training data set has been disrupted. There's new training data that's coming. And I have to watch it very, very closely as I manage that. That's the core of the issue. And off that, all of the issues you're talking about are key, right? Is this consumer better because now they've got access to financial relief in a way others don't? Things of that nature. Yeah. So so many things spin out of this. And it, it really does make it feel like, well, in general, I mean, if I'm not in the lending business proper, but fortunately, we've done a good amount of work in financial services. Writ large, I'm just going to get a little bit more conservative across the board because we're operating in a universe that's quite different than, than the one we've operated in for a number of years here. Number two, as you were sort of alluding to, we want to be pulsing reality with a greater frequency and maybe with different signals to be able to proxy risk in, in new ways to make us feel more confident about who we say yes or no to 
how we're going to price these different products for different kinds of people and different kinds of industries and different kinds of financial situations. And so what is that looking like for them? What are, what are they now being forced to, to sort of do or consider when it comes to data models and updates to, to be more relevant? Other than just clamping down with a little bit more conservatism across the board, which I presume some of them are, what is the sort of AI and analytics response that, or at least some of the strategies you're seeing folks uh, attempt out there? Yeah, that's a great question. There's probably three or four main things. Uh, the first, at the core of it, is actually visibility and the ML ops problem. Right? And by that, I mean that if, if you look at historically how models have been created and deployed in uh, lending institutions, there's a huge amount of work which goes into, and I'm slightly exaggerating for effect in character catering, there's a huge amount of work that goes into building and training these models. And then they're handed over to a set of technology teams who then sort of take the requirements for that, code them in, and then now they're, they're part of the system. They're either models which embed that decision or they're scores and, and they're baked. And when you start looking to see, well, what's the data exhaust through that? How is it actually performing? Are you seeing drift in models? Like Those are questions which the instrumentation around these things is not naturally set up to answer. Right? And furthermore, if you had to make a change to those models, that's a very sort of significant effort. Not only do you have regulatory instrumentation to go through, actually physically making changes to those means you have to go and get data scientists to like understand what's happening, new requirements handed over to technology folks. And, and that's a big part of the problem. So number one, we're seeing businesses across start to come to terms with the ML ops problem and think about this mode of continuous deployment. This is obviously not that uncommon in Silicon Valley tech, right? So if you look at the likes of Facebook and Google and Uber, they have platform systems internally, which allow these things to be done, like Uber's, I believe, is called Michelangelo. But that the need to create something of that level of technical sophistication and engineering to solve those problems has, has, hasn't been there in the vast majority of lenders, but now slowly that need is coming. So that's probably like the biggest thing. And there's a few other things as we look at from that point. Yeah. So, you know, when you look at how folks are going to have to respond, clearly for a firm like, you know, we could just whip a name out there, you know, for a, uh, you know, PNC bank to sort of get their, you know, live models out, adjusted, calibrated, evaluated to such a real time pulse and also, you know, real confidence in their deployment to the same, let's say, agility as a, an Uber or a Facebook is going to be a pretty big leap. This is going to take some time. What are folks doing to start to move in that direction? Most of our listeners are obviously in you know, larger companies that are not necessarily digitally native, certainly not digitally native to the degree of a Silicon Valley unicorn. What do those early shifts look like to start to catch up, to get to a place where we can be agile too, and we can respond to the real world more effectively from this very complicated ML ops kind of standpoint? It's a good question and certainly one reflecting on because it's not as if the pandemic has woken them up to a set of questions which they weren't contemplating before. Many of the large financial institutions have data science teams, they have engineering teams, they've been looking at this. What really has happened is the outcomes and the outputs from these systems, the bar on how they need to perform, where they need to go, 
has significantly been raised. So like nine, 10 months ago, I might have had a data science team. I might have folks who like a couple of times a year show me some interesting insights, potential ML models, which are sort of better. And the vast majority of my actual operational models, which I'm using for decisioning, might be sort of fairly standard logistic regressions, which sort of work. And I don't worry about them. I look at them at the regulatory cadence. Now, what they're actually doing is they're starting to look at all of those operational metrics and saying, at what frequency can I monitor my existing models? Like, is it monthly? Is it quarterly? And can I make that more frequent? Can I make that weekly? Can I sort of start for my high frequency, high velocity decisions? Can I start looking at that daily? So that's one big change. The second is compressing the time from build to deployment. And this varies significantly. There are companies where they can build and deploy models in days and weeks. And at the other end of spectrum, there's companies which take sort of months to actually get models into operation. And that's another thing companies try to look at and say, can I take a bite out of that time? Can I get speed to market sort of faster? And then finally, the biggest thing they're looking at is almost everyone we've talked to, they're they're running out of data science capacity. They're running out of folks being able to do this. And the question they're asking is, the number one complaint of our analytics and data science teams is that they're spending vast majority of their time, about 70, 80% on data wrangling, yeah. tech munging, things which they would consider low value add. Yeah. How can we get them more efficient and standardized and spend more time? So those are three of the main questions changes that companies are starting to make and, and they're starting to make good progress in these areas. Well, these are all things I think almost any business can, I don't want to say sympathize with, but uh, m- many, many large enterprises are, are doing more wrangling than they would wish. I mean, and there's so many approaches there, right? I mean, there's, well, we can start to train a bunch of kind of data engineers in-house who maybe don't need to be able to build ML models, but they can really help out with some of these core tasks. There's you know, changing data infrastructure overall. So we have less of this hubbub to do because we're entering data in a way that makes sense in the first place. There's so many potential approaches, but it sounds like they are at least running up against those barriers and realizing that things, that things have to change. And if, if nothing else, hopefully that'll prompt some, but yeah, it's, it feels like there's a lot. You're spot on. And and, and I hear a a helpful and implicit challenge in what you're saying, right? Which (laughs) is, so, so what's different, right? These things sounds like normal things. I think what's happening now is the specific outcomes they need to achieve are starting to become much more urgent and specific than they were before. Like previously, there were interesting hobbies. I remember three years ago, like having a data science team was largely like something you wanted to say you were doing rather than holding them accountable. The specific accountability on these things is starting to sort of increase. And particularly so in the mid-market, I was talking to a a lender in the mid-market who are actually saying, who was saying, with the pandemic, the number of applications, the lending applications were able to approve and our loss rates have been significantly disrupted, right? We're seeing lower approvals, higher loss rates. So actually solving this problem and getting ML models in operation is an urgent priority. They, they've got a very specific business outcome they need to achieve. Those sorts of things are moving much faster. And as a consequence, they're putting healthy amount of outcome-oriented pressure on their data science capabilities in a way which didn't exist before. 
Yeah, I, I, uh, it's going to be really interesting to see exactly how AI bounces back within these large companies. You know, we're seeing some R and D projects get dialed or kind of thrown way on the back burner. You know, in terms of vendor stuff, you know, certain uh, firefighting priorities come to the fore. You know, there may also be some applications where the heat is on all the more to get teams aligned to basically force what we think of as AI maturity, you know, subject matter experts working with data scientists, data scientists having the support in terms of access that they actually need. Totally. IT people dedicated to talking to data science, not annoyed by data science when they tap them on the shoulder every now and again. You know, it, we, we might force some AI maturity through this stuff, even though there will be some hurdles. And it'll be curious to uh, to see the next six months here. Um, but this, you know, talking about the next six months, you, know, you folks have a pretty big roadmap. You've been brought on for an, a pretty AI-specific role here at Experian, obviously a pretty gigantic gigantic company, you work with many of the largest firms in the world. When you folks look ahead and you think about how business is fundamentally changing, you guys are in the data business, which I think is an interesting vantage point to, to, to speak from. When you think about how business is fundamentally changing, I sort of wonder what that picture looks like. If you could paint that, that'd be great. And then we can talk after about kind of how you guys are adjusting to that future of business. But, but let us know what you're casting ahead. Clearly, they hired you for a reason. Um, what's that vision look like? Yeah, absolutely. So historically, Experian has, uh, for over a hundred years, yep, uh, been in the in the business of using data to transform the lives of businesses and consumers, and that's ultimately sort of our mission. We believe that analytics and AI, in combination with our data now, has enormous potential for us to further that mission, and we believe that. In the future, like analytics and AI will not only amplify, but will also be essential to unleashing the power of our data. And pure data on its own, we believe, will be much less impactful than being able to create the right instrumentation around it to allow it to solve specific problems and to be able to deliver to our customers that use case around analytics and AI on our data. And that's fundamentally what we believe. So my role is very much to accelerate that vision and help analytics and AI become core to our sort of DNA. And if you look at if, if you look at the, the the market and the landscape out there, about 15, 20 years ago, having good data on its own and being able to sort of relay that to our customers, even in fairly rudimentary ways, as we used to do sort of 20 years ago, given technologies evolved so much, that added a tremendous amount of value, right? But our clients now are starting to get sort of sophisticated. I, I come from uh, a background in uh, strategy consulting, and a story that was often sort of told there in strategy consulting was in the mid-90s, all you needed was a laptop and an MBA, and you could go to clients and you could you could do consulting work. You could sell them sort of a segmentation, you could do that sort of work, right? But that reality, as we know now, has like completely changed, right? Like you couldn't really like most companies today have all of those tools and sort of more and the businesses have fundamentally changed. So our belief as well is in the future, we'll have to bring with our data the right sort of analytics and AI around it for it to deliver those significant propositions to our sort of customers and really stepping into their value chain. So questions okay. like, you're using our data to build models, right? Can we start and can we give you tailored models at a 
disruptively sort of low cost, which allows us to, to serve you better there. You build tools, can we give you tools to utilize our data much more effectively? So there's a, uh, there's a number of questions we're starting to ask and how we step into the value chain. Got it. Okay, so this is interesting. And again, we talk from the vantage point of the big enterprises, you know, whether it be the, you know, the Wells Fargo's or, you know, the smaller players of the world. And also from the perspective of vendors who are entering this space and saying, what does it mean to actually add value? What does it mean to be part of enterprise AI transformation? We've had a lot of great vendor perspectives as well. You guys are in the data business. You know, there's this whole, you know, data is the new oil, yada, 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 you know, ball game that people uh, like to talk about. There's obviously a lot of truth to that. What you're getting at is that the way Experian is sort of envisioning itself is not just as the core provider of this critical data, but as a business that can actually offer some of the tools, some of the analytics, some of even the models that that are going to make that data come to life. So instead of kind of just providing it and saying, hey, you guys know what to do with this. You know how it's going to integrate with your workflow. You know how you're going to train models on it. Go ahead and do that. Instead, sort of having some of that done ahead of time. The way this strikes me, Shri, and tell me if I'm wrong, but this is very interesting for me and I think for people tuned in, it strikes me as somewhat logical in the sense that a lot of companies are not going to have a really powerful in-house data science capabilities to just take data and make magic happen in every direction. They certainly won't have as much experience with the particular data that you guys work with. And so maybe to make up for some of that potential lack of maturity, make up for the fact that these folks already have so many things to do, the goal is to maybe bring the barrier of accessibility down. So maybe there's less heavy lift on the in-house data science team and more sort of, hey, here's a model that maybe we can start with and, and do a little bit less upfront effort. It, it almost feels like we're trying to lower the AI maturity requirement for folks to do business with you in an AI age. Is that part of the positioning here? Is that part of the strategy or am I seeing things maybe incorrectly or, or not completely? You're spot on. And I think you've articulated also a, a nuance well, which we're seeing in the industry. And we're saying, probably simplifying in some ways, like two different variations of that problem you described. One where you have larger clients saying, I have in-house data science teams, make my job easier, right? And everything you said there applies. So, and we do some of this today. We believe our big opportunity is to be able to deliver compelling, disruptive propositions at scale. And the solution there is a combination of tools, models, RIP, and really help the larger banks and data science teams right, uh, democratize analytics for them so that they feel less friction, they're able to go faster on that speed to market. And that's sort of one flavor. There's another flavor, which you alluded to as well, is there's a huge number of uh, mid-sized lenders, which, which really sort of don't have the scale or the wherewithal to stand up like big, large data science teams, but definitely want access to ML and AI models in that way and providing that service to them as well at a proposition to price point which is meaningful to them is another sort of significant opportunity. And to do this, we believe we need to bring the right combination of not just our data, but also the right tech and the AI and bring it together in a low-cost scalable model which, which can actually be powerful to the marketplace. 
Yeah, this this whole sort of accessibility problem for for serving, particularly sort of anybody under the Fortune, I don't know, what do we want, Fortune 100, is a huge consideration for essentially every vendor. One of the things I see, and maybe we can close on this note tree, but this will be really interesting to get your perspective. Again, you guys sit at a, a juncture that's different. We have a lot of kind of technology vendors. You guys are more on the pure data side. Is that, you know, we, we think about maybe a crowdsourced data service, you know, and there's all kinds of folks like, you know, Appen or Lionbridge or whoever else that that can collect data at scale, whether it's social media or whatever, and or do cleaning at scale in some way. Part of the challenge for those folks is that if everything is bespoke and different for different clients, it becomes really hard to build products that then they could kind of plug in and use with a whole lot of clients if they're all bespoke and unique projects. For you folks, from what I understand of Experian, there's a certain range and, and types of data that you guys work a lot with. There's certain kinds of businesses you traditionally serve, and that might give you the opportunity to say, hey, we do so much business. Like for this particular kind of whatever, data about who owns car insurance or who has a gun or who has, I literally have, I, you know, I don't have a full context on what experience knows, but the data that you folks use, hey, so many people use this kind of data for this kind of workflow that's enough volume for us to say, let's dedicate product effort to that workflow and see if we can make it easier to plug in. It seems like the fact that you guys are not bound less in your data focus might allow you to find those, those workforce junctures because you might not, because you guys don't work with necessarily every business and you also don't work with all kinds of data. Is that what's sort of allowing you to, to dial in and find these fits and, and, and turn your, your pure data focus into a product focus? Yes, definitely. I think that that's part of it. I think the other part which makes our data important and unique and allows for what you described is the fact that we have one of the highest fidelity and regulated sort of data sets as part of this mix. It's very, very sort of high quality and it's been decades of careful management of how the data is brought in and the fidelity and the reliability of that sort of data is very, very high which allows for a higher degree of confidence in creating certain products and services. The second piece is the regulatory aspect of it. We take regulation, compliance very, very seriously. And naturally, that puts us in a position of much higher both responsibility and trust in ensuring that We'll, we'll use the data only for the right purposes in a way which sort of is allowed for it. I think a combination of those things really start to put us in a position to build products and services on our data. This is also not a novel concept for us. If you look at experience sort of business, there's a, there's a very meaningful portion of our business, which now comes from software products, products on our data, things of that nature. So our real exam question is, how can we accelerate that and how can we drive greater impact with that? Got it. The idea of doing more than just data is obviously not new to Experian, but um, what potentially is new is is a, a whole suite of exactly how that fits into the, the AI ecosystem. So this has been interesting for me, Shri, and hopefully for those of you who are, who are listening in, hearing from Shri today has been useful to sort of see how the you know one of the biggest data providers here is is imagining their future fit in business and i suspect we're going to see more and more attempts to again as you'd mentioned not just sort of have data be value but data and its workflow fit data and its marriage to analytics 
be sort of what's offered, be what's in the market. And so it'll be cool to see how that blooms into the future here. Shri, I know that's all we have for time, but thank you so much for being able to share some of your perspective with our audience today. This has been fun. Thank you for having me. So that's all for this episode of the AI and Business Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Shri. We do our best to find AI leaders within big multi-billion dollar companies. I think it's great to have vendors. It's great to have researchers, but we like to get big enterprise perspective as well because to some degree, it's the most rare perspective to find. It's very, very challenging to find the people within big companies that are actually moving and shaking in artificial intelligence. And we're fighting hard to bring on guests that'll be valuable for you. And the reason we know that those topics are valuable for you is from feedback from listeners like you. If you like the show and you enjoy the guests we bring here for you, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. It used to be called iTunes. Now it's called Apple Podcasts. You can just search for AI in business on Apple Podcasts. Pretty easy to find us. Drop us a five-star review and let us know what episodes really impacted you. What commonalities across episodes have really made the show useful for you? And those insights, I guarantee we're going to be talking about in our internal meetings every Monday. The team and I talk about customer feedback and podcasts is a very big part of that. And also, you might even see your five-star review show up in one of our newsletters. Those of you that have been following our newsletter for a long time at emerge.com, that's emerj.com, know that every now and again, we'll feature somebody's kind review and we'll kind of highlight some of the points that they've liked about the podcast and talk about how we're using those insights to build better guests and better topics moving forward. So we value your feedback, appreciate your feedback, and it also helps other people know about the show, which really means a lot to us. So again, consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts if you enjoy what you're hearing here. And otherwise, be sure to stay tuned for next Tuesday as we get back into AI use cases here on the AI and Business Podcast. 